0: All right, so we're back for part three of this Band of Brothers series, diving into episode three called Karen Tan. Karen Tan. I feel like I always say that a little bit differently, but Sayer, mm-hmm. thanks for thanks for being here again, man.
1: Of course, glad to rewatch it. Um, this one, I it it's been a while since I felt like I watched this one, so I feel like I um different perspective on it, so it was good to redo it.
0: It's interesting for me having watched all of these so many times over and out of order at times where, mm-hmm. um, in the past, you know, you turn on the TV and one of the episodes is on, you might just watch it and it could be episode three or six or nine or whatever. So I, I kind of misplace these events in the timeline of my head. And it's interesting to see like, Oh yeah, those things happened here, you know?
1: Right. But um, we, go ahead. It well, it's an action one. I forgot about that. I, I, you know, I remembered it being the Blythe episode. And I think here's to me, maybe just right out the gate here, just to talk about the episode, what it means overall. I, I think it's a real first taste of, um, uh, the death and the sorrow that is war, right? Because prior to this, you know, you're motivated, you're inspired. D day is the, the Zenith and the pinnacle sort of thing. You're in there for the purpose. We got the mission is so right there, tangible to save the shores, To allow, you know, we got to bust it all up the defenses to allow the guys that are doing the assault on the beach. Now though, we're starting to grind. You know, this this is now just it's not D-Day, it's not the day of all days. It's now just Tuesday morning, and you got to get across that damn field. That's to me, this is where it starts to get into that, and I don't want to say the arbitrariness of war, but the horror of it and the It's uh, the indiscriminate killing of it where the guys are really starting to drop and you're starting to really start to see that, I think, in this episode and get that sent. That that framing is starting to set its um, foothold, I think.
0: My take. You know, I was thinking about it before we turned this on. I was going to say this is another combat episode, which is kind of funny to say when it's a series focused around combat in the Second World War. But for anybody who hasn't seen the series, there are going to be a handful of episodes where combat is and far between it's really not the focus of that episode mm-hmm. but it does seem like we've got a handful here definitely in in episode three they're taking karentan so it really starts out with that the task to seize karentan and that's a a hub where american they say american armor coming off the beach but really what that means is so tanks armored vehicles but the paratroopers coming in behind the atlantic wall if you will the Americans pushing through Utah and Omaha beach are trying to link up inland and they can't just go anywhere. You know, they have to go on roads for a lot of reasons. I mean, these hedgerows made it impossible Mm -hmm. to cross countryside in mass. The Germans had flooded a lot of fields to stop paratroopers and to kind of uh, canalize movement in certain areas that they, that they dictated. So, when you look at these battles in World War II especially, you hear these bastones going to be one later. It's a hub. They have to take it because of all the roads that come and go. And a little bit in my mind, I think, well, just go around it. If you're going to fight that hard, just go around it. But it's not that simple. Mm-hmm. And Carentan is one that they have to take. And interestingly enough, so a little tie back into our old unit, sayer, The 502nd was on the outskirts of Carentan, right? Uh, yeah. A few days prior to this episode. And Lieutenant Colonel Robert Cole earned the Medal of Honor, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his bayonet charge on a causeway known as Purple Heart Lane. Mm. But they were so severely depleted that they eventually had to call the 506th to come up, move through their lines and take Carentan. So there's a scene early in this where they say mm. we've been tasked with taking Karentan. Um, that's who they moved through. So Cole's charge kind of set the stage for this fight.
1: Very interesting. I don't know if I knew, you know, they're all adjacent, right? But exactly how the pieces fit to the puzzle, it's, you know, it's still difficult to discern all of that. It's interesting how focused this show stays
0: on this company to where that's another regiment in the same division on the outskirts. I mean, they could have high-fived these guys. Like, Cole could have watched Easy Company walk in the That's yeah. how closely, but there's not even a mention of it. Um, I don't mean that as a knock against it, but just how how focused it is
1: on Easy Company. Well, and then think if you're the fi- yeah, well think if you're the five hundred two guys that maybe watched this series, like what the hell, you know it was <laughs> we we we're the ones who got there when they were fresh. Easy Company came after we were there for you know twelve hours and they sustained heavy casualties after we sustained heavy casualties. They rolled right into a cakewalk. You know what I mean? Like they <laughs> Because that probably, well, that is sort of true from how it sounds. Like, but that's the teamwork that is, but then that's also the competition within inter-service rivalry that feeds a lot of that fuel.
0: But if the unit that replaced us in Afghanistan, if you saw a documentary about them, wouldn't you kind of be
1: like, hey, hey. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And they probably thought crappy about us, and then they yeah. thought crappy about the unit replacing them. You know, it's just, if anyone here is a veteran, they probably know what I'm talking.
0: So easy company, it's not just a company, but but a battalion regiment task taking taking Karentan, which it's funny another thing here for anybody that's interested in American military history or the military, or maybe just you know, in the hundred and first, they know this name, they know Carantan. I don't know if they could point it out on a map, it's pretty mm-hmm. small. It's a population of about five thousand today. I don't know what it was in World War II, it had to have been lower. Um, between mm-hmm. people leaving um, and just population growth around the world. But let's throw a number out there, two to 3,000 people in this town. It's small. It's a small town, but it has outsized weight. Same with Bastone. We'll get to that later. Um, mm-hmm. These are tiny little nothing towns, not to speak poorly of the fine people of Carrington or Bastone, but it's crazy how these little towns with no historical significance for the United States, Today is the name of
1: an episode, right? Um, Absolutely. And that, um, yeah, you are right about that. It's just a small village. And you can see how agrarian they still were when you'd see like the rows of the heads of cabbage. I'm sure they were making their own cheeses and milking their own cows and um, still very 1800-esque. That's the vibe I get from that region.
0: And people still living there so yeah something to note as we get into the first point here is france was occupied country and for the most part prior to june 6th normandy france was not a war zone it was occupied there were certainly allied bombing raids over normandy but there were allied bombing raids over most of france because we weren't trying to we the allies weren't trying to tip their hands as to where the invasion was coming um it wasn't necessarily more or less bombarded than most of Western Europe. So there were still plenty of civilians there. So when this fighting kicks off, there are plenty still living in that town. I got to think that some tried to get out of there, but what do you do? Which direction do you go? Um, That leads to the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is when George, they're they're starting to clear buildings in Carentan and George, they, they break the window, throw grenades in without looking, right? Because you look over the window, you look in the door, you could get shot in the face. Right, yep. And then the next one, he freezes, doesn't throw the grenade, kicks the door open, and there's a family huddle there, which it kind of shows that a grenade in the
1: window would have killed them all. And I don't remember them briefing that at all in the movie or anything. I mean, did they really... That, to me, that's kind of my question. Did they know going in that there's going to be civilians like that? Or was this supposed to be, I mean, the way they were chucking grenades, you would have thought they had the assumption that, of oh, they're long gone. Like, they know it's game on, and they've pushed into more, in you know, um, interior France at this point, safe zones. Um, but that's, you know, I don't know. I have no idea what they were um, expected to run into at that point. Given the
0: just what's the, maybe the breadth of the fighting in Europe during the second world war. I don't know very many places where somebody could have said definitively that town is empty. Um, I'm sure it happened, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it was every village. It was every town because it wasn't just fortifications. It was, um, you know, in Normandy, France, where were the soldiers going to sleep? They weren't going to put up, they weren't going to build their own structures. It was an occupying army. They're going to sleep in that house. Um, That doesn't mean that there's That's a right. gun nest on the second floor necessarily, but yeah, I think the war was so widespread that I don't know that you could ever assume no civilians. Um, but then you have that that the risk, you have to weigh the risk. Again, you put you knock on the door nicely, poke your head in, and um that might be it.
1: Well. And I'm sure that, you know, on the ground, you have situational awareness and you know where certain buildings are and aren't and what you're taking fire from and you're not taking fire from. And the way you approach each, I'm sure, is building, you know, it's just judgment call at the end of the day. And there are wrong answers, but there are no right answers.
0: So something that came to mind for me with this incident with George Luz is, first off, had he thrown that grenade in there, killed the family, nobody would ever know about it right the dirty nature of war um he would not have been tried he would not have been considered a war criminal um it's just the nasty nature of war that things like that happened. but I feel like the way the show presented it was that family was lucky and they lived. but it makes me wonder about the other side of was George Luz lucky because what if he'd thrown that grenade in, killed that family, and then kicked the door in and seen what he'd done?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder, I, this is a, a, a very individual topic, but I wonder if you can come back from that. I wonder if you're the same person, if you take the same risks, if you're as aggressive going forward, knowing that you've got very clearly innocent blood on your
1: hands. You know what I mean? Um, it's whatever you're able to tell yourself, and if you believe it. Um, I think it's that's each individual person because, like, I would hate for a guy, for me personally, if he did do it. I would hate for him to feel that way because um, he did everything that he was told to do, and that's not his fault because that's what they were doing. Everybody was, and so what? Other guys just happen to get lucky that there were Germans in there. They, they could have been just as equally a family in there for everybody else doing it, and it's going to be a family statistically if I guess civilians are in the population, they're going to, it's going to happen. And for him, it's not his judgment call. You know, he's a private on the ground trigger puller that's following orders. And that's different than opening the door and seeing who they are and mowing them down, by the way, because that's not what we're talking about. We're not, we're just talking about, you know, kind of, and that's how I'm trying to describe it is these offensive units moving forward in a heavily fortified zone where they're kind of blowing their way and leapfrogging and um that is the sort of the war is hell collateral damage the humanity and suffering of war like I said I think it was really shown in this it's showing the civilians getting roped into it I think there should have been more civilians dead bodies that we should see in the fields because you know that that was that they were there if they were shelling them the way they were and there were families like that you know that there was crumble there were legs and there was Um, Crumbled buildings with body parts and children parts. You know that that was true. So they should have shown even more of that, in my opinion, just to again show that um, the suffering and misery—that whole the war is uh, hell—piece of it. Looking something up
0: here, so I don't give out
1: too uh,
0: too incorrect information. But it's not coming up quickly, so I'm gonna rattle off a stat and see how close I get. About civilians. Yeah. So something leading up to the invasion was known as the um the transportation plan. And the allies bombed transportation hubs all across France rather than I mean they still hit airfields and things like that, but rather than focusing on the beaches where they would actually land and the troop concentrations, they hit the, you know, the rail lines and and bridges and uh things like that. The idea was immobilize the german forces they cannot come in to try to help and the challenge with that is you're quickly pushing into civilian areas you know rail mm-hmm. stations are in can be in cities and towns um mm-hmm. bridges have are generally not in the middle of the country they're around bridges around around cities and the number given to eisenhower was high i have in my mind it was around one hundred thousand if not more hearing that that's the number of French civilians that would be killed by Allied bombers by carrying this plan out, and it was a decision that had to be made: of is that acceptable if it means we can eventually win and liberate the rest of the country? So, you're right. It's a topic we don't hear a lot about, but there were a lot, a lot, a lot of French civilians.
1: I'll say caught in the crossfire. Um, okay. Not all. A hundred us, was the estimate. Us. That was the the risk balance, right? And that's the science of warfare, by the way, just like they knew that not every plane was going to be able to unload all of its troopers on D-Day. That's the science expected loss. That's a cold, hard, calculated fact. The humanity of it is the art on the ground. Um, But how many died at Hiroshima? How many did? I don't know. Nagasaki. Do you remember? Isn't it like I think they're they're both just shy of one hundred thousand. And we were planning the Nagasaki, the equivalent to the French people. Think about that as the number. When you're talking science, which is math. This is math. It is a stat at the end of the day, too. And to think that we were accepting that same friendly fire, um, in a sense, friendly fire. We're liberating. They are friendly. Of course they are. Innocent civilians, the same amount as the atomic bomb is just kind of fast. It's really fascinating. Um, both for the greater good.
0: Um, what a call. That's a call to make. And we can sit here and say, it's for the greater good, your country's going to be liberated, but, but what if one, two, or five of those hundred thousand is your family, right? Yeah. How much do you care right. about the greater good if it's your family that gets killed? Right. Exactly. It's, it's much easier when you're sacrificing someone else. So let's get back into the fight here. This is the episode where pretty quickly um, private, I believe, Blythe freezers turns the corner in the yeah. middle of the fight, freezes, falls to the ground. Um, in the moment, kind of looks like a panic attack, maybe shock, something like that. Hmm. Um, what's going on there? Are they again, saying temporary blindness or something?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I think it's showing that, again, the a lot of people normalizing not normal things like the guy with the watches just picking them up off the dead people like it's nothing and then you have really blithe who's more sensitive to that fact and he's kind of in an environment where other people are just immediately desensitized or they just desensitized very early on to that fact and just said they're dead whatever just doesn't matter garnier just doesn't we're gonna get them and if there's the only question is if there's too many of them um too many for us to be able to kill but if it's the right amount we're gonna kill all of them um and then if they've got stuff on them, we're going to use it, you know, because we don't even have guns ourselves and we're going to take it off of dead bodies. Blythe didn't do any of that. He seemed to be from the beginning sort of shocked that he was even there, not too motivated to go and kill Germans or whatever the mission was, which is pretty much kill Germans and not die. Um, and so I think he's just showing maybe a more normal response than everybody else that's in this sort of um, berserker state it's a good point yeah it,
0: it it strikes me as the same reaction where it's something early in combat or early in a traumatic experience where somebody might shit their pants right they just lose control of their body and it's not necessarily that I, i'm not going to say that it's fear it's just you kind of don't have control your body's um overstimulated maybe, um, your mind's going too fast. There's you're, you're considering things you've never considered before life and death. And I mean, that happens today. You have issues with guys on the battlefield that, that happens.
1: Um, it strikes me as the same type of thing. Well, and I think my take on that, by the way, is yeah, the more thinking you do, the worse it is. And that's what, when I keep seeing battle drills and harping on it, That's the beauty of the battle drill. The battle drill is the conditioning to where it doesn't allow you to think. It triggers a reaction and a response. And so, because if you have time to think about that stuff, oh my goodness, you're going to let everybody down because you've paused and now think about your own personal safety. And you have now become an immediate liability to yourself and those around you because they are also going to have to take care of you. Um, It has nothing to do, by the way, with him getting shot later. That's a whole different thing. I'm just talking about, sort of that mental, I mean, it's probably jumping points, but I think it goes to um, Spears. um, Let's go to that. We'll come back. Let's go ahead and jump to that. We'll come back. Yeah. um, Just what he's saying. And I think that there's truth in it where he, where he says, you just haven't accepted that you're going to die. And once you get to that acceptance, things are better. And I feel I have a personal thing with that. I was totally in my head for a while. I don't, I'm sure I could carry the face that no one really knew it, but truly I was worried about uh, myself and then the consequences of others, like, and then my decisions for, I mean, it was, it was twofold, but I was scared for my personal body, of course, too, but I was also scared of the bodies of others that were my judgment, but then I got to the point where I just thought, well, uh, I'm going to try to make a math problem out of, like, someone's going to die in the platoon, and then accepting the fact that I'm going to be one of them, and that helped alleviate both of those burdens for me. Not to be callous about it necessarily, but um but it took a while. It definitely didn't take as quickly as um they did it at the very beginning. But I think us, we had different combat and trauma scenes, you know what I mean? Um but I I just I, I do relate to what he said. Um and Spears maybe found it within three hours on D-Day. Yeah. Right? And I think that might be the nuance between everyone's deployment, whether it's Peleliu or North Africa or Iraq invasion oh three. You know, maybe the invasion itself wasn't even that bad in March of '03, but by October, maybe it's a, di- you know what I mean? It's just like I think everyone has a deployment that was different. That that could be infantrymen or any any sort of MOS. Um, getting shelled and mortared all the time when people do die is it would be a, a different feeling um, if that's what you, you know you, the trauma or um, experience that you had was that was sort of the fatality concern. Um, that'll do something to you, I'm sure, over 12 months of that. And um, it, it would be crippling if all you do is think about the mortar coming in. I, I think that there would have to be some sort of solace that if it gets me, it gets me. And in fact, it is going to get me. And then you're kind of like, ah, is my descriptor. That's, that's my, when he said that, I don't remember him saying that at all, ever watching it. And I just really noticed it this time, right? It just, and, and it just soaked in in a t- entirely different way, this episode. Because again, I watched this episode- just remembering Blythe, um, Blythe's story, I, which, is, again, is really, in, in the scheme of things, only 10%, 13 or 15% of the episode. There's a whole lot of other stuff that contextually build, I think, into this episode. So I think I was a little bit in the other
0: direction. This is a quote, you know, accept that you're dead, no passion, no mercy, all of that stuff. He kind of takes it a little bit darker, in my opinion, um, almost like you need to be robotic and not thinking. Um, I didn't remember Fierce. that piece of it. Being the robotic one, yeah. When he, you know, a soldier needs to be, you know, no mercy, no thought. Like, I, I didn't remember that. I remembered, I don't know why it stuck out, but um, the whole time I was in the military, active duty, I I remembered that in my mind before and during the deployment. um, Deployments was the idea of accepting that you're already dead. I always thought of this, and because it kind of, it kind of messes with your head a little bit. That's something that's really hard to do. I don't think I ever did that. I don't think I ever um, went that far as what he's saying to accept that you're dead. But it was an active thought of this scene actually. And I was thinking more about it after rewatching the episode. And I think the way that I kind of coped, if that's the way to put it, um, was I didn't really have any thoughts for when we got home. I didn't have any plans, really. I didn't make any sort of plans in terms of a place to live or vacations or any of that until we were like weeks from
1: coming home. Until that point, it was almost like it didn't exist. Try not to think about it. Don't want to jinx it. I mean, superstition too. I think because at least for me, um, it's well. And I, here's here's by the way, what, basically for one thing, there is no. This is uh, everybody is different. And dealing with this sort of crap it is not normal but your body can normalize it your mind can normalize it and that's weird and creepy um but it can and then how what you do with that is all individual and i guess the point is spears spears is trying to get him through it and say hey just you're you're already dead he's trying to help him and then maybe blight is going to list it in from a a private that's like hey man just remember we're all from the dirt man we came from the dirt we'll go back to it life is suffering man deal with it and he's like, maybe that's what clicks for Bly, the hippie side of it, because that's not with that, wrong. with that accent, right? That yeah, totally, man. Uh, and that's there's nothing. I think that that's also true and right. Um, or I don't know, dying in the service of your country. You could anything to motivate and inspire and justify all the crazy stuff that you're seeing, to where you want again to keep moving one step in front of the other. When there's machine, you know, people are trying to end your life, and it's that's a sacred thing. You know, there's that's a good point. There's probably, I mean, if
0: if Spears had gone down the line and said that exact thing to somebody else, they might have said, "You're crazy,
1: get out of here." But You've lost your mind. If Spears said it to me, I'd be like, "Fucking right," you know what I mean? Like, and it would have probably motivated me. And it, in fact, like I said, for me personally, I did do that, and it worked. So, doesn't work for everybody. Everybody's different.
0: I'm gonna pull it back um to try to say relatively chronological here okay and but it ties in with what spears is talking about i think and that's winters gets wounded i guess this is the first time i'm not sure if it's the only time but but the first time he's wounded here the battle's done for Karenten. They've they've taken the town he's standing in the middle of the street kind of looking at a map and a bullet looks to like ricochet or something it's 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 pretty clearly isn't aimed at him. It's just, it's a battlefield. Bullets are flying in every direction and it catches, him on, it catches him in his foot and he has to go to the medic and get it taken out. And I bring that up to talk about the chance in war. When there's stuff flying in every direction, you know, mm-hmm. we think of it as being a guy aims at, a, you know, a soldier aims, another soldier pulls the trigger. And if he's a good shot, he hits him. But if he doesn't hit him, that bullet continues on. And maybe ricochets and maybe hit somebody that he didn't even see. And just the
1: weird chance that is in war. I think, yeah, no, I think it all ties in with the Spears thing. Because I think this is the episode and it's, you know what, it's not, I think accepting that you're going to die is too specific. I think a better way of framing it is saying um, accepting the arbitrariness that is war. Which partly means you accept the fact that you might or will die. But just the arbitrariness of it, where you get the word fair, or unfair, or good and you know, right and wrong necessarily. It's just like bad things happen to good people and you and, and innocent people. Like I'm sure all the innocents that they again that they saw die all prior to this point and enduring it and maybe be responsible for a part of it accidentally and while they're trying to get out of there and you just thought they were German, you know. So how many times did that happen on this? Um, it's not something that you'd want to broadcast, but it, I'm sure it was a part of it, especially if, you're, if we're saying that 100,000 was the number. Not that, not that we hit that number, but I'm sure we hit more than 100, um, in a sense, in that, in that regard. There's a bit of this
0: – there's a letter I got. Or this, somebody gave me a letter that was written, maybe a speech, something like that, before I started West Point, and it talked about the chance of war, and it was talking about a blade of grass. And how at a certain distance, a blade of grass could potentially deflect a bullet enough to miss your helmet or, you know, that kind of crazy little stuff. The wind blows a little bit, bam, and it misses. Hmm. Um, And I was thinking about it in in context of this fight. It doesn't matter how good you are. That's one of the things that's hard to get your head around, I think, when it comes to combat. It doesn't, just because you're the best warrior, the best shot, um, it, it doesn't matter. There's, there's chance if there's a squad in a tree line and a machine gunner sees a guy on the right side and tries to open up at him and misses that you on the farther side that have perfect cover perfect concealment and are just poking your head out when you know the guy that you're looking at can't see you and you just peek up two inches enough time for the guy to miss his target and a round catches you in the head you did nothing wrong Mm. the other guy missed you never even saw it
1: it's the chance the arbitrariness of it all. Like, not that's different than the meaningless part of it. The arbitrariness, the indiscriminate part, maybe indiscriminate. Because, um, again, like I said, if you start saying unfair, well, I think, again, I think it was unfair for someone to die in the plane before they got a jump, <laughs> you know, like before they got a land, and it's just, it's indiscriminate. It doesn't matter. Um, Captain Meehan, like, we still don't even know what happened to him. Um, it's just, I hate saying it is what it is, but that is kind of what I'm saying when we're talking about the hand grenade with the civilians at the very beginning. When we are talking about that, that's kind of the, it is what it is.
0: So continuing on with Winters, I got a couple points here about him. Um, he limps for the rest of the episode. Cause he's got, he got shot in the foot. Um, rightfully so, but it, I was waiting for the scene where somebody said, you need to be evacuated. And he says, no, Um, it's just not even there. Turns out he just, the assumption from the get-go is he's going to continue to fight. Now they're kind of at the front. So it's not like there's a great place for him to evacuate to, but there were field hospitals. Um, And I want to hit on the idea real quick on the difference there of being tough versus being stupid. Because Mm -hmm. when we see this with Winters, it's what a badass the dude got shot and just laced his boot boot up tighter, right? Shoved a bandage down in there and didn't miss a beat. And I think I'll say to say at a high level, Winters was not being stupid here. It, he clearly was able to function just fine, but that's a thing. It's not always tough. Just going back into the fight. There's times where that's stupid and you put other people at risk, right?
1: Well, yeah. Um, Yeah, this definitely doesn't appear to be that case, but the stubbornness and ego can most certainly get in the way of things and, and a feeling, because I feel like you, we always have to think at the end of the day, we are always replaceable. And um, there's always someone there like, you know, you're training that way. And I don't know how, there's no way that he could feel that way though when he was going through it because me was who else is going to do it? Right, so I get it. I get it. Um, but you're, there is a line where you become a liability. So if you're not able to take care of yourself, then you most certainly shouldn't be thinking you're you're going to be able to take care of others. And that's a judgment call. That's a judgment call. And, um, but he just seemed like, I mean, Winters oozes self-awareness like no other. This is maybe a pretty weak example, but I don't know if you remember this, but there was
0: a soldier in my headquarters platoon who cut his cast off. So he could deploy. Remember
1: that? I don't think I knew that.
0: Um, Because of it was set to come off in a matter of weeks. So it was pretty healed by that point. But had it happened a few months prior, I think that crosses into the category of stupid because what happened and it was tough. We looked at it as kind of tough, like, all right, here we go. He doesn't care. Right. But if it's a few months prior and his arms not healed and he goes out on his first patrol trips, breaks his arm and now can't carry his gear. It changes Everything. It sounds simple, like, fine, I'll pick it up, say, or
1: you pick it up. Right. Now you're slower. But it's a, and it's a slot that we um, weren't prepared to have to fill now as compared to if we just would have known we could have at least, maybe it would have been filled, maybe not, but we would be at least a head start on filling it if it wasn't filled already. You know what I mean? And that's what I mean by everybody's replaceable to, because we are in a certain extent. I mean, we are. Should, should and, be In this context, right? I mean, that's, that's the a, idea. In, in the military, you train for it. Train two, uh, two levels up. I mean, right? Two levels up, that would be a, me, a lieutenant, trying to be a plan for a battalion commander. It sounds crazy, to, but that is what they say. <laughs> that's what a, a squad, a team leader is supposed to Not saying you'll get to that point, but I guess if you have that mentality that you're also, they always, in the military, they are always about you're playing big boy, big boy playing big boy games. Rules big, we're going to treat you know. Now, some people get treated like children, of course. I'm not saying that, but at the end of the day, um, you are responsible for yourself and those around you, most importantly. And that is the ultimate big boy rule are you able to do that? Be able to play on a team, take care of yourself first and foremost, hold yourself to the standard because you have to. At the end of the day, you have to listen. You can't always be told all this, you know. That's not what you want either. You want you know, independence and, and self-starting and head-on a swivel—all those sort of things. You don't have to micromanage. Um, so, can you do those things when no one is looking? And it makes everybody else better when you're able to do that. And you realize that. And then you realize that if you're not able to, you're that you become the kink, and you cannot become the kink.
0: Well, I mentioned
1: in, I think the first, I don't
0: know, in one of the last two episodes I mentioned we were going to talk more about hedgerows because there's an episode that really dives into it um this is it this is kind of the hedgerow episode in in Mm -hmm. terms of showing what those are the nasty I mean talk about a great place to set up a defense right if you watch when the fight kicks off they're just walking and every group of hedgerows looks the exact same and then bam all of a sudden they have a little bit of high ground and it opens up and you can't see that until you're right up on it and They're every 100 meters, every 200 meters. They're they're boxes, right? They're boxing in fields. So in every direction, um, there can be machine guns, mortars. There might be people behind them. There could be tanks behind there that you don't know about. Um, Just it's like clearing a checkerboard. It's in a sense, this is a little bit of a stretch, but it's the urban combat sense of one block at a time. Mm -hmm. You have to clear one hedgerow at a time. And just because you get out in the middle and you say there's nobody in the middle here, they could still be on all four sides dug in.
1: And it's again part of the grind. It's not the sexy work. Like, I feel like I would rather be doing the D Day thing than this because D Day thing, it was like it was chaos and you were the one disrupting it and surprising the Germans and they're hitting from different angles. Germans are totally distracted. This is like they kind of have a fortified iron wall and you're running right into it, (laughs) trying to like with your bodies into running into the machine guns. Now you're kind of like the guys on the beach were. At Normandy, which is a totally different battle the way um, they're fighting, I think, in Carentan versus what they fought earlier with the whole invasions, the surprise angle. I mean, they're going up against the tanks, machine gun nests, open fields. It just looked really rough. The Carentan's a rough one, I think. I don't know if you remember this, Sayer, but before we deployed, uh,
0: the battalion commander at the time, Colonel Benchoff, did a little briefing about the agricultural fields in Zari. Mm-hmm. And he referred to it as the same tactics needed that were used in hedgerows.
1: Yeah, I remember, remember
0: that? that. Yeah. I remember that. Didn't really, I, I wouldn't say it really played out the same, but I can see where the concept comes from. Just yeah. The fact that everywhere, uh, every fence is a fighting position.
1: Well, it was um, flat, rural, agriculture, village, not heavily populated but populated sparsely with sort of a peasant working farming class that was more uh rural than because there were airplanes and stuff and but these people probably had more of the outhouses and may or may not had electricity i think there are a lot of similarities in that sort of regard and then of course the hedgerows being tall and um dirt berms that you could shoot behind and that's one thing um you're going to find
0: very, very, very few critiques of the series from my end. But in this one, I wish they would have shown some of the taller hedgerows. There
1: mm-hmm. were some
0: tall and deep enough, if you will, that you could drive vehicles through without people seeing them. And over time, those have all disappeared. As the French countryside has transitioned to more modern farming techniques, sure. I mean, it takes up a lot of space, right? It's, you're you're right. eating into your farmland to have that there. So, I mean, when you look at the Midwest United States, we don't even have, but tiny, tiny little fences, right? Take every square inch you can to, to plant,
1: mm-hmm.
0: So there's not a lot of those left to be able to see. Um, it's like trenches in World War One. There's not a lot that you can go actually see anymore. So mm-hmm. I wish they had used some of the really intense hedgerows to kind of show what that looked like. Instead, I feel like in this episode, it shows it almost just like a tree line
1: more than anything. I agree with that. And I was still – until Colonel Benchoff mentioned it, I was kind of ignorant of it because my main probably education of all of this was Band of Brothers, which didn't have a bunch of head And then he mentioned it, and I started like looking around. I was like, hmm, interesting. Now, I wasn't quite aware of that. Now,
0: I should, I should be careful with that because the – it might – not every hedgerow was 10 feet tall and six foot thick. I know. Um, right. Some of them were just like this. So it's possible that this is perfectly historically accurate. I just, from a nerd
1: side, wished that they had shown them because I have a hard time picturing those sometimes. I agree. No, I agree. I, I, I'm with you. Cause I, when Colonel, like, again, when I said Colonel Benchoff mentioned them cause he did mention them matter of factly, like we knew what they were. You're like, Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> just like D-Day and the hedgerows. I know Band of Brothers. I've read the book and the series, of course. And, but in the back of my mind, I was like, I hope he doesn't ask me about him because I don't know <laughs> what he's talking about. Because I think he's talking like shrubs and yeah. shrubs don't stop bullets. So what's the big deal? Uh, Just look over. Or shoot through them. Yeah, It's D-Day. Just shoot through them. If you see movement, if you see the leaves rattling, blast it. Um, but that's different, obviously, than the dirt berms and in and, and the maze and the fighting positions that – You were still fighting conventional army, at least with the Germans. So you were probably not likely to expect one to three man little teams running around popping shots and operating smoothly within those. um, Hell, that's a question. What was the French resistance doing against the Germans who we said occupied? What did that look like? Was there some sort of resistance? Maybe it wasn't violence. But would you think most certainly that they were communicating and using those supply channels in the hedgerows and like places that all the locals knew how to navigate? That's an interesting question, but I think they probably were.
0: So during this fight, it's the two sides dug in, the Americans on one side, the Germans on the other. And there's a couple times of pretty intense contact. And I think they do a good job in this episode of showing the other side of what we talked about last episode, which was when they go to take the guns at Brecourt Manor, Winters is in the assault element, right up front, shooting,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: charging. Um, And we were saying that's not always the spot for a leader. Sometimes you got to be not necessarily back, but just in a different place. um, And kind of that challenge of figuring out where you should be. I think they flipped that around in this episode really well. When you watch the battle in the hedgerows, Winters is hardly shooting.
1: It's directing. Yeah. But the thing is, though, he's still always there. He is still always there. And it's not the fringe. I still think he's within the bubble. What do you mean? You know what I mean? Like, like, well, and I think they make a point of it and I, it's right before he gets shot in the foot where Major Strahan was like, is it safe to cross, Lieutenant? He's like, what are you talking about? And he's standing right there in the middle of the alley. But that's the you know the the ground leader, or whatever, who's more accustomed and again used to the nor the uh, the normality of an abnormal th- abnormal thing. The major wasn't used to it yet, so he's got the apprehension. And my point is, I think they the maybe the point of that scene is just to show that he's always <laughs> winners. His feet are always on where the bullets are, and the fringe of it meaning you're really not going to catch a stray. He's there. He literally. It's rare that he caught a stray. That's the abnormality with winners. He probably should have been shot 50 different times with a real bullet, not a ricochet, like huh, someone aiming for him. Because he is standing up, though, when he's commanding, and bullets are whizzing by him. And so uh, I, I hear what you're saying where he's not, he is not in the upper 10% of the order of movement, right, into the heavy shit. But my point is, however, he's not at the back 10% either. You see what I mean? that's not what I meant. Uh, maybe I phrased it incorrectly. He's right
0: there, six inches from the front lines, but he's directing the fight rather yeah. than squeezing the trigger until the one that, the time that stood out is when he was yelling at Blythe to fire. And then yeah. he started shooting right next to him. You know, Blythe yes. poured on, let's go shoot, shoot, shoot. And then he starts shooting. But every time up until then, he's directing the machine gun section, talking to the mortars, yes working the radio, talking to the platoon leaders. Um, it's the sergeants directing the fire. It's the NCOs directing the fire. It's the privates yeah. pulling the trigger.
1: It's That's the nuance. It's, he's doing a hands-on command and control because he's still hands-on. He's right there, but he's still not doing it though himself. That's the art of it. Because um, he is right there. He is right there. And I do like that with thing with Blythe, by the way, just, just to notice just leadership because... We do know backtrack real quick to where Blythe couldn't see. He does run into Winners and Winners remembers it and recognize it and, and is able to talk him out of it, by the way. He was more gentle than a guy like Spears. So it's like maybe the Spears thing is not again clicking for Blythe, but a, a kind, nice person you respect like Winters. Yeah, maybe it's a little more cheer up. That's all you're trying to do is just we gotta just keep moving forward and motivate and inspire and make him not make it feel like it's meaningless. That is just the worst. That is the worst and hopeless. That's the worst. Um, and then winners right there doing it too. I mean, it's it's. I guess my point is, it's very easy to say cheer up, pal, in a doctor's office. Um, but then here we have it. I don't know how many hours later. It could be a day or three days. I, I don't know the timeline. But winners is right there in the shit with him, and and he got him to do it right. He got Blythe to get up, and for good or bad, right or wrong, um, it seemed that Blythe was able to overcome his fears and. At least, at a minimum, not become a liability to those around him. Because that's he, that's his fear. I mean, I feel like that's Blythe's fear. I don't think he's, I think he's afraid, afraid of letting people down too. I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. It's easy for him to look like he's scared of his own life. Maybe we don't know, but he he mentioned it kind of a few times in the show. He's afraid of letting people down, you know, and that that would be a horrible feeling too. I think. The thing
0: I liked about this scene really when the, the back half of the fight kicks off, if you're watching it with this eye of everybody has a job to do, you see that the job of the company commander as Winters is, or the platoon leaders or the machine gunners or the squad leaders, none of them are better or worse or more dangerous or easier. They're all just different. And if they all do their job, they're an effective fighting force, but Winters as the platoon, as the commander is directing the entire fight, if he gets down behind cover and starts shooting, like that's not helping the rest of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, if the guys on the machine gun get up and start trying to work the radios with the other platoon, like that doesn't help anything. You have a job to do. Right. It, and it's not that one is better or worse. It's that
1: right.
0: everybody's, especially with the company commander right there in the front, they're all taking the same risk. They're all, the same bullets are flying overhead. Um, I just thought it did a good job of showing... I feel like in a lot of war movies, everybody's a rifleman. and Everybody charges forward. The only difference is maybe the commander has a radio or something, right? Um, but everybody's a rifleman. I thought this was a really nuanced way to show that there are
1: specific jobs and each one's doing mm. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean... and. Again, I think, again, it goes back to that humanity piece. I think that Winters is there to show the acknowledgement of fear and Blythe, say it's okay. I think that, I think that is going on underneath the context of all of it. Um, Yeah. And we're here together, but at the same time, everybody does have a job to do. And if you look all around, I mean, there are no options what can you do in a situation like that? Besides, I mean, think about that. They're going after Karen Tan. There's no backwards. I don't think. Um, I don't know what would happen if I'm sure, I mean, it's controlled terror. I'm sure every, every single person is scared, you know, and I'm sure that that's an issue too. It's like, if everybody starts, cause once those machine guns start opening up in the field, what if you just stop Then you're really screwed? Like, cause then you're really pinned down in the field and you're in a really bad way. Um, So it's just, oh, that episode is just, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a bad way of combat what they had to do there.
0: So one of the last points here, something I meant to bring up earlier, um, kind of on the lighthearted side before we get into something a little more, um, not dark, but but theoretical maybe. Um, I do like in Band of Brothers how often they show soldiers laying down, trying to sleep. It's like every chance they get, like they're in the middle of a war zone, Sarah. Yeah. They just jumped into Normandy. Think about how many soldiers you saw laying around trying to get some sleep on D Day. They're smoking and joking. Yeah. Before lunch not, or whatever. Not in the middle of the fight, right? In a, in a relatively yeah. secure area. But like, I love that because that's right, right? You get a little break, guys go down and go to sleep anywhere. Yeah.
1: Anywhere. Thought that that is was true. Thought they did that's a a that didn't common. They did. I don't know who they used for all of this. because um, it was before the GWAT stuff, and those guys were, I don't know who they used. I mean, maybe Vietnam guys could help with a lot of that as like, uh, they're just the production crew and all that stuff. Cause it, it's a different Hollywood now. I know, I just know that a lot of veterans are in Hollywood. Like, if they have like a stack of SWAT teams on CSI, they're all veterans a lot of times. They're just wearing all the kit and they, cause they, you don't have to teach them anything. They know how to use the guns. But this is Hollywood in 01. It's not really, it's not really like that. Cause you know why, that's why the movies in the nineties are so corny a lot of times with the military uniforms. They're all jacked up because ho- nobody was in the military in Hollywood at all. Uh, but they get it right in Banner Brothers, which yeah, it, it's astounding. The detail, all of it. Well, one of the last things I
0: want to get into here, and I'm really interested in your personal take on this one, Sayer. After that battle in the hedgerows, um Blythe kind of has his moment he shoots or believes that he shoots and kills a German soldier kind of it appears to give him some confidence maybe is the way I put it and later they're on a patrol they come across a farmhouse and Lieutenant Harry Lieutenant Harry Welsh I believe Harry Welsh Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Welsh anyways um said we need two people to go check it out and they kind of have this back and forth with uh um, Lieutenant Nixon saying pick the volunteers I hate picking volunteers and or asking for volunteers. Anyways, he it's a mix. He asks for volunteers, gets one Blythe, and then directs another guy up there. You know, to to, to fast forward through this, Blythe gets shot. Um, I believe eventually dies of those wounds later, mm-hmm. a while
1: later, but but dies of those wounds. Like I My think five years me, of being in a hospital, something like it's not. It's bad. His whole story is just so sad. But yeah, I was never
0: in a position like this. You as an infantry platoon leader went on a lot more patrols than I did. This type of thing, when you're going into a dangerous area, asking for volunteers versus directing its first squad today or whatever, just interested in your
1: thoughts on that. Mm. Well, I, yeah, I got nothing to make me mad than getting asked to do something stupid that I didn't agree with that I thought was like a bad thing and would get people hurt. So it's, it's a very, it's something I took very seriously and very personal in a way. Like what you asking me to do is very personal because you're asking me to do it myself. That's how I viewed all of it. Right. It's just like, it's all me. It's all the same. It's all. And it's even more than that because it's their lives and it's terrible, but, um, Hmm. So the, the reason I asked that, that- like, how do you pick, like the question is how do you pick or how do they pick? No. The
0: difference here, I guess, is I feel like if I say, let me get some volunteers and something happens, it's like they volunteered. It's maybe not as much on my shoulders. um, Maybe a bit of a way to kind of cop out of that. Whereas if I say, say, or you and Tim are going up front and you both step on an IED and die, then I'm going to 100% feel like I just sent you into that and i i wonder if that was ever in your mind or if you dealt with that much
1: i don't i'm just trying to that's what i mean i'm kind of thinking out loud here. and what i'm trying to say is to me i think it's just more decision of who's going not necessarily i don't think we did the volunteer thing i could be wrong about that but for me to think i'm picking volunteers means like there's voting going on and i think that that's weird to be honest if i'm like if it's myself and a platoon sergeant um I just think that we, I think that we probably mostly just perceptive of, of of what guys are doing. Okay, alpha need you know, alpha team might need a you know, or first squad might need a break. So second squad's going to go this time, because it's like we both, they, they're both capable of doing a job, doing the job itself. They both had their own nuances, um, but maybe it was. I think it was just us, us to have a feel and a vibe of like, okay, now second squad's going to go up front. Now first squad's going to go up front. Um, that's you know, it's ten years ago, but that's I don't. I don't remember picking volunteers. Now maybe would a squad leader have picked volunteers between that. I think it's just a leadership nuance maybe too. Right. I think it's a, the way that you might have a vibe and a gelling with your guys and that sort of thing. Um, that's an interesting question. I never really thought about, to be honest. That's what came to mind there when Welsh was doing that. Like
0: it's, it, it seems like, it seems like it's a way to alleviate that burden and I can see how you'd feel. Okay, I, I can see how I would feel okay with it. Um, his burden
1: towards, as the platoon leader,
0: yeah. And and, I, and I, maybe and that's I don't the part mean, that makes me uncomfortable because I don't
1: like that part. Like, I don't mean
0: that as a knock on him either. I, that's yeah, not,
1: I know. That's why it's hard for me to think about. Because if I, I if I'm viewing it for his sake, then I'm going to judge it. To be honest, that's just me. I'm not saying he's wrong. It's just. It's just a nuance. And I I do think it's weird asking, but I wasn't there, man. Like, they were all sorts of jacked up. And and it's just very hard. Command and control would be different. Um, I feel like we were – I have to bet we were probably more rigid in that than what they were because they were doing battlefield commissions. They were doing – guys were becoming first sergeants that were E4s not that long ago in reality. and. because watch Floyd Tabler as you if anyone's watching it for the first time, just watch me just like he's the guy that gets stabbed, just check and guard like anybody else, and he becomes a first sergeant pretty quick like um that's a big deal um that role is and but he was just a young kid too, so um I forget where I'm going with that, but it's I think that they had a more probably personal relationship than maybe what we would have had in our and I think we had a more personal relationship than the Vietnam guys would have because they were just a 365. No, everyone's on an individual rotation in and out, whereas we did at least rotate as a cohesive unit. Um, I think that we probably had more rank and file regimen between the ranks. There, weren't, there, there really wasn't going to be a battlefield promotion in this sort of thing in, in, in our war. You see what I mean? Can I ask you another Can I ask that another way
0: on that same topic? When it came to who was running the mind detector, did you choose that or were those people that volunteered to run those? Because that's kind of like
1: the person that's going to be point. That was not my decision at all. Because I would say, I do not, I do not like micromanagement. Don't make me unless I have to. I really don't want to get in somebody's shit. I really don't care how you do it. I want you to do it your way. And so um, I would only jump in your shit if I saw a safety error like life, limb, or eyesight. But if it's going to be somebody tripping and falling and doing something dumb, I'll let you do that. I'll let you make those mistakes and then hopefully you learn from them. But um, so, you know, my, I would have been first squad you're going. And, and if I continually saw him do alpha team up front, cause alpha comes before Bravo, then I might pull him aside and say, Hey, you know, you need to get let like Bravo up there too. You know, just because first squad is up front doesn't always mean alpha team first squad is up front so you need to rotate they've got mine you know they know they got a guy that knows how to do it too so think about that um that would be my job but it was never alpha team leader with private class or whatever is going to be it wasn't to that level um I was, you know i didn't want to like i said that was not the goal either i didn't want company commander telling me what squad to put front forward i would have been pretty salty if he did yeah if he tried to tell me uh, which squad to go first I've been pretty salty about that because I feel like I know my squad better than he does because I'm the one watching who's on the guard rotation and all that sort of crap so I think we're pretty close to wrapping up here
0: anything I mean they they at the end of the episode they make it back to I think they're back in England by the end of the episode
1: mm-hmm. yeah um,
0: little R&R little break and, and that'll lead us into um, episode four but before we kind of hit on that briefly anything more on this one you want to talk about
1: well, I think it, uh, back to what I talked about at the beginning, it's that motif of the um, suffering, the war is hell, which, by the way, Lieutenant the Harry, I uh, can't remember his last name again, Welsh, first platoon leader, he says war is hell in this episode. Yeah. And all the names right now it becomes more personal because, again, D-Day, it's just guys getting in the in the plane and it's just a lot of chaos. But now it's like even the way I feel like people get killed in this episode where they just they're talking and they just drop. It happens quite frequently. And then the specific names that the lady is and back to fairness. What's fair? Is it fair that she doesn't get paid because they died? So now this guy's got to pay like that. You know, that's what I mean about the war is suffering. War is how it's it's arbitrary. It's indiscriminate. Um, You know, that's kind of sums up the, the episode to me in a way. It just, it hits it on its head. And the only other thought I had, by the way, as we're talking about this episode is I want to learn, because we are talking about battle drills. I keep talking about them. And like last episode, you know, they had knockout a bunker, which is to me pretty black and white. It could be the machine gun nest. It could be the artillery, but they clearly knew knockout tank in a way where they trained with the two-man team in the bazooka. That's kind of cool. I wish I knew what the M I don't, I have, I don't know what the battle drill is for that, but clearly there is something up there where they sneak up with the bazooka they they hit it. I'm sure there's a breaking contact sort of sense. Just like knockout a bunker has its throw the hand grenade. That now to I never thought about that until watching it. This go around like I want to learn battle drill, whatever they had back then about knockout tank, because it's uh it worked. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. I give him credit so you, for that.
0: You were saying they started to take a lot of casualties in this episode and um, they gotta refill those ranks. And that is kind of the focus of episode four. It's called mm-hmm. Replacements. So that's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.